0: So it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he was buried, He will, and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he was seen by Cephas. Then by the twelve, and he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom, the greater, uh, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that He is raised up in Christ. Who? He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in this in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, this is the word of God given to the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord, whether it is hot or cold, it is beautiful because you have given it to us, Lord. And we are here, Lord, we are here and we are, Lord, expecting that you are going to speak to us personally, God, not just only as a congregation, as a corporate group, Lord, but you're going to speak to us one-on-one as God to Ryan, as God to anyone else, to all of us, God, you're going to speak to all of us. And Lord, we know that your word says that your word will not return void. And so Lord, as I, as I speak this word, and I, I pray and I ask, Lord, that you send out your word that it does not return void. Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We're grateful to hear your word, and I'm grateful to teach your word. And so we just pray that as we are here, we can know your word and we can better understand it. We pray this in your name, and we all say, Amen. You may be seated. And I got to say, this is probably one of my uh, favorite Bible passages in the entire Bible. You know, just to have Paul say, if Christ is not risen, then we of all men... Are pitiable. You know, there was this one time that I was uh, back home. You know, i those of you, I probably said this a hundred times, but I'm from California, right? And uh, back home, um, I lived on a small mountain town, and there's like 10 people in the town, you know, so everybody knows everybody, right? And my sister, she had a softball banquet, right? And so I'm there with my mom and with my little sister, and pretty much like anytime you go anywhere, uh, you're bound to see somebody. And so I'm there, and I see a guy that I played football with. I was like, "Hey, man, you know, good to see you. How you been? You know, and uh, and the rest." And uh, so we're talking, we're making conversation, and uh, he he, you know, he asked me, he goes, "So what are you doing?" I'm like, "Well, I'm I'm actually going to the Bible college right now." I'm, you know, and he goes, you, "What? You're like studying to be a priest?" I'm like, "No," and uh, and so he's like, "Then why are you at the Bible college? Like, what are you what are you doing there? Like, why aren't you going to regular college? Why aren't you trying to go get a you know a good job, right?" And I was like, "You know, because this is what I believe in, right?" And then he, he kind of questions me, and he goes, you do realize that there's like over 3,000 gods, right? How is it that you think you have the right one? How is it that you think that your Jesus is the right one? Because there's Mormons, there's Jehovah Witnesses, there's, you know, and all these other Jesuses, right? He's like, how do you know that you have the right one? And the thing is, is that I ask you that same question today. We're here in this church because we believe, I would assume, we have the right Jesus. That we know that we're going to heaven. But, but how do we know? You know, we're here in 1 Corinthians, right? And uh, we're here in chapter 15, and this is the end of the book. Paul has been taking the past 14 chapters, going through this church that has been very naughty. Because what happened was that Paul, he received this letter from this, uh, from this lady named Chloe, right? And she was kind of like, hey, Paul, how's it going? Listen, we need help. And she listed an an enormous amount of details of what the church was going through. One of them was divisions. Imagine that, like, everyone on this side of the church was like, we don't like everyone on this side of the church because this side of the church is, I don't know, Republican. And on this side of the church, everyone's Democrat. We just don't like each other. It was kind of going like that, but they were saying, hey, we believe in Apollos. We believe in Paul. You guys ever heard of that before? Right? They kind of like took the identity of who was preaching the word at that time. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. They got mad divisions going on in this church. Not only that, but they had mad sexual immorality going on. There was this dude in the church, he literally married his mom. right? And then, so instead of the church being like, uh, this is sinful, this is wrong, uh, this needs to be taken care of, the church became proud. And they're like, you know what? Love wins. This is what we're about now. Society is moving in a new direction. This is it. Here we go. Praise the Lord. This is love right here. And so and so, not only that, but that Christians, right, they were eager to sue one another. So instead of having a problem with somebody and being like, hey, you know, Pastor, um, we have a problem. Can you kind of help us solve it out? They would take each other into court and they would be like, this guy was mowing my lawn on the wrong day. You know, I, I don't know if that was what, but sounds like it. In the church, the men of the Corinthian church, they were discouraged to marry, right? What happens in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, So according to the things that you wrote to me, that it is good for a man not to have a wife, right? Now, I've just been married. It's pretty good to have a wife. <laughs> it's nice, <laughs> you know? But And I can understand why, because the women at this church, what they would do, in the middle of the service, they would stand up and they go, I have a word from the Lord, and they would just scream. Right, and then and then some people, well, I got a tongue, and they would just start bursting out in tongues. And then someone would be like, "Well, I got to prophesy." And then if the pastor was saying something weird, they're like, "Ah, oh, I don't know what that means," you know. And so Paul was like, "Listen, shh," <laughs> it kind of says in First Corinthians. So I can imagine Paul receiving this letter from this lady Chloe, right, of just asking for help. Right, she was probably just a gal that was just kind of helping out. You know, she was, you know, just helping out and, and just doing what she was doing. She was like, you know what, Paul, we need help. And so Paul, I kind of think he read this letter and was like, oh my gosh, this church has problems. And so here they are, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the last problem of the book. But I would say this is the most important problem of the book. Read with me in verse 12. What does it say here? It says this, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, How do some, not the entire church, but how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So in other words, the last problem, the biggest problem of this church was that there was a group of dudes, a group of guys, sorry, um, that was teaching that Jesus Christ was just kind of a good guy. And that he never rose from the dead. And that not only that, not only did Jesus never rise from the dead, but that when you die, you're not going to rise from the dead. And then that's it. And so I kind of, when I was reading that, I was like, how the heck did we get there? How the heck did a church that believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ get to a point of being like, no, we don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. We don't believe, we just kind of think he was a good guy, and that when we die, that's it. And so I thought to myself, how the heck did that happen? I have two answers as to why I think that might have happened. The first one was that Corinth was not allowing themselves, and they were not being taught by the word of God. But that they were allowing themselves to be taught by bad, false pastors, false preachers, false bishops, whatever the word was back then. The people that would come to the pulpit and teach them, they weren't taking the word of God and saying, this is what the word of God is. This is what God has spoken to us, the people. They were just kind of talking about whatever. And so when I would identify a false pastor or false teacher, I would say anybody who teaches anything else other than or also of the Bible because some religions we know some they take the Bible and then they have something else they add a little bit to it or they don't even teach the Bible they have their own doctrine but they kind of say oh, no but we are Christians right so what happened was that they were struggling with that with a group of people who were teaching. They were called the Sadducees. You ever heard of that word before, the Sadducees? Kind of similar to the Pharisees, right? They were a group of Jews in Israel at the time. And as the Pharisees, they were, you know, the Pharisees, one thing that they did have that was really good was they held an immediate importance to the Word of God. So much so that they would take it and they would go, oh man, it's the Sabbath. I can't tie my shoes. I can't do anything because they were so conservative in the Word of God. Well, the Sadducees were kind of more of the opposite. They would... Um, excuse me, they would believe that there is no resurrection from the dead, and that once you die, that's it, but not only that, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe that there was any sort of punishment for sin, in other words, they didn't believe in a hell, and they didn't believe in a heaven, so they just kind of thought that what happens here on earth is it, and that when you die, there's nothing. And so they were kind of the people that were telling everybody, hey, listen, if you want to you know, marry your mom, go for it. If you want to have three wives, go for it. Because you know what? God doesn't care at the end of the day. And the church was like, huh, interesting. Because that's what happens when you don't let the word of God be your teacher. And the second issue was that they were letting society be their teacher. You see, folks, when, that, when we're not letting the Bible be our teacher, then the world is going to be your teacher. And so when the world tells you, hey, listen, church, you're not allowed to talk about homosexuality anymore. You can, you're not allowed to tell people that they can't move in with their boyfriend and girl. You're not allowed to talk about sin. When we let the world tell the church that, then our faith and our Bible gets corrupted. And we see that here in 1 Corinthians. We see that this was the church that let that happen. They let the world into the church and they let the world teach the church. Does that make sense? And so that's where we're at today, that's what's going on, and we have this problem of the Corinthians, because they were listening to bad teachers in society, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul, he has this problem, among many problems, that he's here at the end of the book, and he's finally addressing it, and to address it, he has to first, um, you know, kind of like remind them of what happened in the beginning. So let's read what happens, you know, in verse 1 and 2. Let's, let's get to that point. So he says, moreover brethren, okay, now the word brethren, that's kind of like moreover brothers and sisters, is to the church. Moreover brethren, I declare to you, excuse me, the gospel which I preach to you which also you received, and in which you stand, right? And so what happens is that before Paul even starts going like, how the heck do you not believe in in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He starts at the beginning. He says, listen, I want to remind you, right, of what happened 20 years ago. I want to remind you of that event. And what does he say? He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. And then he says three things that happened to them when they believed in the gospel. What are they? The first one, it says that you received the gospel. Now notice, the word received is a past tense word. This is a word that's saying, you believed in what I taught you, and 20 years ago, you took it. This isn't a matter of, well, Paul, we actually never really believed in what you taught us. No, 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 no. He's saying, listen, the gospel I taught, you received it. And this is also saying that, salvation first always starts with your choice. It's not anybody else's choice. It's your choice. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in Jesus, then you shall be saved, right? You have to receive the gospel first. So that was the past tense. That happened back then. And then what else he says? He says, in which you stand, right? That's present tense. Now, what he says, in which you stand, he says, I'm declaring to you the gospel in which you received and in which you stand. This is talking about an identity. When people ask you, hey, what's your religion? You say, I'm a Christian. It's your identity. It's who you are. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, he says, so as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. That is your identity. That is who you are. I am no longer Ryan Mesa, but I am walking in Jesus Christ. That is your identity. It is, the, it is the clean garment you put over yourself and you say, my past is gone. This is who I am today. And so he says, so you received it. You identify in it, right? So he's like, now we're not even talking about 20 years ago. We're talking about today. Like today you're talking about that you're a Christian. And then he says what? He says, last thing he says, uh, and in which, or sorry, he says, uh, by which you are also saved. So he says the gospel is what saves you. But also that word saved, it's not how we would imagine how it's like, you know, I kind of think of a business transaction. Like, hey, you bought it. It was done. It was immediate. But it's not like that. It's a process over time. This is what's called in the Greek a present passive. Okay. Imagine like a river flowing from a mountain into the ocean. Does it just flow like that? Or does it flow for years and years and years? The Nile Nile River was spoken of in the Old Testament as flowing from uh, the northern part of Egypt all the way down south. And it's still flowing today. It's a present passive. It's flowing. It's ongoing. It's continuing. So when he says, you are saved, he really means you are being saved. Because what he's saying is that, listen, I'm still a sinner. I believe in Jesus, but I am still extremely wicked. Ask my wife. (laughs) You know? Every single day, Jesus has to save me from every single one of my stakes. He has to keep me from the sin that my soul so desperately wants to be into, and so he 's not even talking about twenty years ago he 's not even talking about what you, you know what you say you are he 's saying this is something that you are doing now. He says you are being saved right but all of this it all hinges on one point what is that one point it 's if you hold fast that word. Which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It, I kind of think that's interesting because my whole life as a Christian, it's always like, "Hey, if you believe in Jesus, you're saved." But he doesn't say that. He said he doesn't say you received it, you stand in it, and you identify. Right? and you're saved by. It. He doesn't say if you believe, which would kind of be how I would, you know, two plus two is four. He says if you, uh, he says if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. That kind of made me go, why? That's an interesting word. Why would you say something different than what is all over the Bible? Because it's not about if you believe, it's about what you believe in. You know, we can ask our Mormon friends, our Jehovah Witness friends, we can ask our Muslim friends, you know, we see them all over the place. Do you believe? Their answer is always going to be yes. I have never met a person that was confident that they are going to hell because they don't believe. I've all, if anyone has ever said, I'm going to hell, it's always been because, ah oh man, I, that's not for me, you know, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to party in hell, whatever. But I've never met someone that has said, I'm going to hell because I don't believe in Jesus. I've never had that conversation before. But nine times out of ten, people are always saying, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, right? But the fact of the matter is that Paul's not saying, listen, it's based on you believe. He's not saying that if you believe because everybody believes in something. Everybody believes in something. If I was to believe that I'm jumping off the top of a, of a building and I'm saying, I'm going to fly, that doesn't make it true. Right? But he says, if you hold fast the gospel, that word which I preach to you. Now that word to hold fast, I kind of think of it like as if you're holding a glass jar real tight right here. You know, or, or, you know, it's, it's uh, the middle of uh, playoff season, so you'd be watching these running backs running into the hole like this, holding the football like that because they don't want to fumble it, right? So if you think about it, the word to hold fast is to take your faith, right, and you're holding it, and you're not letting anybody touch it because this is so extremely important to you that you're not going to let anybody touch it. Then you're not going to let anyone mess with it, right? And he says these things apply to you if you take the gospel and you hold it fast, if you protect it, if you are paying attention to what's happening to it, right? But then he's, but if you're not holding it fast, you take your faith and you're kind of like this. You know, you know what? Like, I believe. I don't know if I believe in Noah's Ark, I don't really know if I believe in the Trinity, you know? And you allow the world, the society, to mess with it because it's not protected. It's not right here. It's not holding fast. You're not being aware of it. We have a lot of young moms in our church. And I have never seen a young mom hold her kid like this. <laughs> that would be insane. <laughs> but it's like, it's tight. You, you protect it. You hold it fast, right? And so, Paul says, if you hold fast. And so, my question is, why is it not if you believe? Why is it not based upon a simple belief? Because I've always thought to myself, right, if I believe, I go to heaven, right? Well, let's read verses 3 through 4. Let's, let's see what Paul says. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, right, of utmost importance, that which I also received. He's saying that this is something that has not changed over the past 30 years, ever since Jesus was here, right? He says that Christ died for our sins according to what? According to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to what the scriptures. And so, salvation is not simply based upon if you believe, but it's based upon your faith in Christ, according to the scriptures. Because there are tons of Christs out there, isn't there? Isn't there just people? You know, I I can't imagine. It's just. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who have said, I believe in Jesus. And I ask them, well, who is your Jesus? Well, I kind of think that, like, you know, because society's changing, that Jesus is like a tall blonde woman and she's fighting the patriarchy and, you know, she's the head of a company and things like that. I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Like, no, 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 no. Be- Jesus, according to the scriptures. Listen, folks, the importance is on the Word of God. The importance is not about you. It's not about whether or not if you believe. It's whether or not if you believe the Jesus according to the scriptures. And I think it's so wise that God said according to the scriptures because 2,000 years have passed. And certainly some things have changed. But yet, the word of God has never changed. And he says believe in jesus according to the scriptures right and the good news is that the word of god it guides our faith right and so jesus says in matthew chapter 24 he says that you know heaven and earth will pass away but my word will never pass right and then you know david actually says in psalms 138 he says that you have magnified your word to be above your name isn't that insane you know, the word God says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And then God himself says that the only thing more valuable than the uh, than the name of Jesus is my word. Because without the word, how can we ever know who Jesus is? How can we ever know who the, what the gospel is? How can we ever know that he rose on the third day? How can we ever know the prophecy? How can we ever know any of that? We can't. And that's why it's so important. That's why Paul says, you know, he, according to the scriptures, right. You know, and so if our faith is on the line, right. And if we're talking about our eternity, because, you know, the the kind of guy that I am is I don't want to take a risk. You know, I I didn't ask out Abby until I knew that she was going to say yes. You know, I was asking her friends and I was like, hey, like, does she like me or what? You know, because I'm not going to ask her out for her to be like, no, you know. I, I'm a kind of guy that needs to know, you know what I'm saying? And so, I don't want my faith in God to be a gamble, right? Can I get an, an amen on that? Like, I don't want my faith in God to be a gamble. I don't want to be like, you know, if I had to choose between Allah and Jesus Christ, I think God probably has, or Jesus probably has, a seventy percent chance of being the right one, and then a lot. You know, there are a lot of Muslims, and so he probably has a thirty percent chance of being the right God. I don't want it to be like that. I don't want it to be a gamble. I don't want it to be something where, like, I'm not confident. I want to know what I'm getting myself into, and so should you, as a church. You're here. You should know. You. I mean, am I the only one, or do we want to know by a fact? I know exactly who God is, right? Well, the good news is that I'm excited that you're here because Paul gives us evidence. Man, that's the one thing about the Word of God is that he gives evidence. He doesn't just say, I'm God. He says, I'm God, and look, I'm going to prove it to you. Isn't that something? So let's check out the evidence. Let's see what God actually shows us to prove right the gospel. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 through the beginning of verse 8. It says this, and it says, And that he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter, Okay? Then by the 12, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep and that he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also. Let's just stop there to look at our evidence, right? So this is all evidence for Jesus' resurrection, right? And so first he says he was seen by Cephas, right? Now Cephas is in Aramaic. It means the word stone. Right. Imagine like a stone out of like a riverbed, like something like you know, like, kind of like something that David killed Goliath with, like a small stone. Same, similar type of word. The word Peter is the English word translated from the Greek that is Petros, coming from the word Petra. You guys ever heard of that uh, place Petra? You guys ever seen Indiana Jones? Right? He's all running through the caves, and there's like that huge temple on the side. That's Petra, and it's called Petra because that's like a huge boulder is what that means in the Greek petros is a small rock because what happens you guys remember when when uh, jesus was at caesarea philippi and he goes hey um what does the world say about me and they go well some say you're jeremiah some say you're elijah some say you're another prophet and he goes okay but what do you say about me and peter goes ah you're the you know son of the living god and then he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he says, And you shall be called Peter, for on this rock I shall build my church. And if you read that in the Greek, wow, it's the craziest thing. He goes, And you shall be called Little Stone, for on this huge stone I will build my church. And for the rest of Peter's life, his name was referred to the moment that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church based on the confession of faith. Right? Isn't that something? Isn't that so cool? That for the rest of your life you're going to be referred to as a guy that was the first one to discover that the church is built on faith, right? And then so it says he was seen by Cephas. Let's just think about that. So that's Peter. That's who Peter is. He was the guy that made that big declaration, right? And this is what happened at Passover dinner. They're all sitting there, and Jesus is talking to them. He goes, "You know what? I'm going to have to be. I'm going to be taken, right? And I'm going to be, you know, given up, and I'm going to die." Jesus says no Lord may not be right he says I will fight for you I will die for you and Jesus goes really Peter really because I'm going to tell you something you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows before even morning comes you're going to deny me three times right that's exactly what happens and the Bible says that when Jesus uh, or when, when Peter denied Jesus on the third time and immediately that rooster crowed right Jesus looked at Peter and Peter saw him and he wept bitterly the Bible says And then you don't see him. He's just gone from the story until Jesus comes again to him on the beach. You guys remember that story when he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But again, in the Greek, what is he saying? He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I like you. Right? Isn't that so crazy? And so Peter, he just ran away. But it says he was seen by Cephas. He restored Peter. He came to Peter. He said, hey, listen, I know you're ashamed. But look, I'm here. I rose again. Right? then by the twelve he says he was seen by the twelve. Twelve men who were with jesus right for three years of his earthly ministry right these were guys that knew jesus now it says by the twelve because that was their title that was their name right um but at this time judas was gone from them that was just who they were they were the twelve right and uh you know among them was this guy thomas you guys remember thomas doubting thomas remember him man that's crazy what a name and uh you know, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that he rose again until I see him and until I put my hands in his wounds. Right? Jesus comes up to him and he goes, Hey, check it out. Right? And then he says, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus goes, Thomas, you believe because you see me. But he says, But blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Right? And so he was seen by the twelve. He impacted the twelve, right? seen by 500 brethren at once you know not only was Jesus meeting with followers right who he knew personally and was like you know people who were like best friends and whatnot not only was he meeting with people who were like just devastated that he died he was meeting with normal people 500 brothers at the same time now this word brothers in the Greek it actually means man it means brother it means husband is what it means in the Greek and so when this happened when Jesus appeared to 500 people what they did is they counted all the dudes because they wanted to make sure that they could have an accurate number to tell this story in the future. Because you guys know that at that time, uh, women and children, they didn't really have a viable uh, voice at that time. But imagine if there's 500 guys, imagine how many girls and kids there are. This is a huge pe- I'm like, amount of people. And he appears to all of them and they're all looking at him and they're like, wow, that's Jesus. It wasn't like, a, oh, is that- that's Jesus. He was right here. And they were talking to him, and they were hearing him, and they saw his wounds. He appeared to 500 at the same time, right? And I think it's just interesting because Jewish law, right? It says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall your word be verified, right? This is 500 people. This alone verifies the account of the resurrection. If you've ever had any sort of doubt that Jesus ever rose from the dead, that's all you need. Five hundred people at the same time testified that Jesus rose from the dead. That's all you need. But Jesus didn't just appear to people. That wasn't he was he wasn't trying to verify his testimony. He was trying to impact people. That's why he appeared to Peter. That's why he appeared uh, to the twelve. And so he appeared to these five hundred. And then who's the next one? James. Now this isn't the James that was the apostle. Um, you know, you commonly hear of him as the you know it's it's um, Peter, John, and James it was like the three of them, right? It's not him, but it's the brother of Jesus, right? It says he was seen by James. Now, James went on to go and be the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, right? But remember, James, he grew up with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He heard Jesus. He listened to him for like 30 years before he publicly, excuse me, started his ministry. He was with him and he still did not believe, Jesus was telling his family listen like this is my ministry and Jesus of all or James of all people sorry he should have believed he was with Jesus the most way more than Peter way more than anyone he was a dude's brother you know but he didn't believe not until after the resurrection not until Jesus was seen by James that is not something think about this for a second seen by James what does that mean that means James knew Jesus that means James knew his eye color and that after jesus rose you know after jesus ascended into heaven james could sit there he could tell you man jesus had the biggest cannonball at the jordan river you know he can be like Jesus' favorite food was falafel and lamb you know he can be like Jesus' favorite you know flower was this he can be like man we'd be wrestling and jesus would give me a big punch on my shoulder you know but he knew jesus he was a brother of jesus Church history says that when James died, his legs were so crooked that they had to, like, straighten him out to put him in a coffin. Now, that makes sense to me. Because if you knew Jesus that well, wouldn't you spend every waking moment on your knees praying? I can just imagine being in Jerusalem, watching the pastor walk down the street. And you're like, hey, James, where are you going? And he has two plates of food. I'm going to go spend some time with my brother. Or he has, like, flowers in his hand, right? Hey, James, where are you going? I'm just picking some Jesus' favorite flowers, right? Could you imagine that? Just the time of relationship he had with him afterwards. What an impact. And I think it's important because, you know, appearing to James, what that shows the church is that, yeah, Mary had children. It disproves that, you know, Catholic doctrine that that Mary was eternally a virgin. But the church has been arguing that for 500 years, and they're not going to stop. But the more important is that, I think what the point is, is not about Catholic or Christian doctrine, but the point, church, was that James did not believe beforehand, but then after Jesus appeared to him, he did. Do you see that? He was staunch. He was like, I am not going to be a Christian. And some of us kind of have that testimony. I was not going to be, I did not believe, you know, he believed Jesus was crazy, you know. And then Jesus appears to him. He was seen by James. He didn't just appear himself to James. He impacted James. Right, Who's the last one? Then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. What a phrase. As one born out of due time. Do you know what that means? In the Greek, I had to research that and prepare yourself because it's a little bit graphic. It literally means the word abortion. It literally means the word miscarriage and stillborn. And when I read that, I was like, why on earth would Paul be saying that I was saved by Jesus the same way that an abortion or a miscarriage or a stillborn child happens? Why would you not say that this was the most glorious thing? Why would you not say that this was the most beautiful uh, experience that I had with God? Because unfortunately, we see on the news that people who talk about abortion say that this was an unwanted child. Unfortunately, we know way too many people who have had miscarriages. And did you plan that? No, of course you didn't. You didn't plan a miscarriage. No one does. And when you give birth to a stillborn, no one... No one plans a stillborn child. You can't plan for that. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, I wasn't planning to be a Christian. I was born out of due time. This was not who I'm supposed to be. Why? Let's keep reading. For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul uses that language, right? To demonstrate that where his life was going, he would not have ended up in a church anywhere how many of us could relate to that where my life was going you would not have ever seen me inside of a church building you would not have ever seen me preaching the word of god he's saying i was born out of due time because this was not what i was planning on doing i was the guy that was locking up christians bringing them into prison and that when they got into court i was saying kill them i was that guy verse 10 but by the grace of god i am what i am And His grace towards me was not in vain. Amen. How many of us can relate to that? I can. Way too much. And you know what? He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. I have no reason to define myself to anybody. I have no reason to stick up for myself to anybody. You know why? Because it was Jesus who died for me and rose again. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I don't need to prove anything to anybody. Because by the grace of God, God has saved me. Right? Right? Jesus wasn't just appearing to these people. He was changing them, folks. He was taking the ashamed and he was turning them into the most confident preachers. You see, that was Peter. We, would just, we just finished the book of Acts, right? We're just sort of reading through it. And uh, we've been teaching through it for a little while now. And we see Peter teach. Wow, what kind of confidence this guy's got. You know? He'll be standing up there on the temple and he'll be like, I got something to say to all of y'all, you know? He was taking the ashamed and turning them into confident preachers he was taking the disbelieving and he was teaching them into the teachers of faith you see that was james you ever read the book of james he says faith without works is dead this was a guy that met that lived with the two for 30 years and he's telling us faith without works is dead." why because he lived it he lived it and then last of all he was taking murderers and he was turning them into preachers of eternal life you see that was paul That was Paul. My question to you is, what has God saved you from and what is he turning you into? Right? The Bible commonly talks about us as being clay in the hands of a potter, right? Or in the clay maker. You ever seen a lump of clay? It's just gray and it has no form. And then you see, ever seen like ceramic work? It's beautiful afterwards. Because... We as a church, we must, we have to identify ourselves as just that lump of clay turning into that beautiful ceramic work. What has Jesus saved you from? What is He turning you into? The I, the reason why I'm asking that question is because I think that's something that we struggle with here in 2020. Is that Christians nowadays, at least some, you know, here in America, and I, and I say that not because Christians elsewhere are perfect, but because this is where I live and this is what I know. I feel like. What happens here is that when we become saved, we kind of struggle with being a bit of a quote unquote Pharisee. And we kind of struggle with thinking that like we've attained and that we are we are good now and that you know what you should follow after me, right? Because I have I've done it. I'm I'm doing pretty good, you know. But Paul he says, I persecuted the church of God. You know how many years that was ago? That was twenty years ago. That was 20 years ago folks you guys can remember you know some of you guys can remember 20 years ago when you guys got saved first right you know and he says i persecuted the church of god he's remembering still 20 years later what god took him from and what god was turning him into isn't that beautiful we have to stay away from that mindset of that you know what i believed in jesus i'm good i'm holy you guys should follow me and if you don't do what i do you are a sinner because that is not the love of christ but we have to keep that mindset of by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says, and his grace towards me was not in vain. What does that mean, not in vain? The book of Ecclesiastes has a beautiful word for that. It's in Hebrew, but it talks about smoke. It literally talks about being like having something in vain is trying to like catch smoke. It's like you're not going to do it, man. Like, it's not possible, right? And so by him saying the grace of God is towards me was not in vain. He's saying that what great, what God did for me, it actually produced something. Let's see what he uh, sees in verse, in verse 10 through 11. He says, But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or it was they, so we preach and so you believed, right? So he's saying, I labored more abundantly than they all. They all is the, uh, is the rest of the apostles. He's talking about Peter. He's talking about John. He's like, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Now, I got to be honest. By me listening to that, I kind of think that he's kind of being a little bit arrogant there. And I don't blame him. We, we've been reading through Acts as a church. And you know what? It's kind of a biography about Paul, you know, of what he did. Right. A few weeks ago, right, we were we were reading that he was uh, on the island of Malta. Right. And that he was the guy going grabbing firewood. Right. And he was setting up camp and whatnot for all these Romans. You know, and he was telling everybody, hey, listen, God said that we're not going to perish. He was doing crazy things, you know, and he says, but I labored more than they all." But listen, he's not being arrogant. He's not saying, but I did this. What does he say? He says, yet yeah, not I, not I but the grace of God that was with me. You see, when you place your faith in Christ, there's an interchange, and then there's a bit of a partnership that happens between you and God, right? And that God is kind of right here next to you, and he guides you in your own life. And he says, the grace that was with me did that. What's happening is that he's looking back on 20 years, and he's saying that the past 20 years, I have done crazy things. And we say, yes, you have. And he says, but that wasn't me. That was the grace of God. And when he says that grace, God's grace was not in vain towards me, what he's saying is that it produced something. Because if you are a Christian and there's nothing coming from you, then the grace was in vain. In other words, Jesus refers to Christians as uh, like trees and plants. right? And he says that as a Christian, you have to produce fruit. Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We all know the song. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and (laughs) self-control. I do the children's ministry with Abby every now and again. Um, so, so, So Paul says you produce the fruit of the Spirit when God gives you grace. And if you are a Christian, you place your faith in Christ, and there is no love, there is no peace. There's no patience, there's no kindness, there's no goodness, there's no faithfulness, there's no uh, self-control. I might have missed one, but gentleness. Thank you, thank you, Gina. There's no gentleness in your life, right? Then you're not producing. And so when Paul says, God's grace towards me was not in vain, he's saying, I produce so much fruit. And do trees eat their own fruit? No, we do. And so by him saying, I labored abundantly more than all than they all, he's saying, I was blessing other people. None of this was for me. I didn't have this big old ministry uh, trying to get rich off of it. He said, "I did this for you, right?" And so we see that because it all comes from this message of what of what Jesus said in Luke chapter uh, Luke chapter seven. What happens is that imagine that Jesus is invited by this Pharisee, right? And the Pharisee, he's got his all his holy garments on, and Jesus, he's invited to dinner, and he's having this conversation with this with this guy. His name's Simon, and this woman just kinda of comes in and just kinda of disrupts the dinner. And she walks up to Jesus and what does she do? She starts kissing his feet. It's kinda of awkward, and this the Pharisee's like, dude, like, do you not know who that girl is? Like, that's a that's like the town prostitute, you know? And this girl's kissing Jesus' feet, right? And then she starts crying so much so that she takes her hair and she starts wiping his feet. And then Jesus looks at Simon, knowing all things, and he says, Simon, I have a question for you. He says, Imagine that there's a guy and he has two people and one of them is indebted to him a hundred dollars, another of them is indebted to him a million dollars. Who is more grateful for the canceling of the debt? You know, if you were if you were indebted to somebody, right, you and you and your friend, and you both owe an amount you a hundred dollars, your friend a million dollars. And then the um, the ower, or like the, you know, the Jesus uses the word master. So the master says, you know what, I'm going to be grateful, I'm going to be gracious. I'm counseling your guys' debt. Who's the more grateful one? Simon kind of sits back in his seat and he goes, I would suppose it would be the person who owed the greater debt. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And he, and he points at the woman at his feet and says, ever since she came in here, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And she has not stopped wiping my feet with her hair. You see, she was a prostitute. And back then, her hair was like part of her trade, you know. And it was kind of how she would prostitute herself. And she was taking her sin and she was laying it at his feet, literally, right? And Paul, we take that concept and we say, Paul, you know, excuse me. Jesus said to Simon, sorry, I forgot this part. He said that those who have been forgiven much love much, right? Paul, he was a murderer, right? He has been forgiven much, and so he produced much, is what we see. That's just the simple concept of what happened. And so I want to talk about us, though, is that what happens when we're not producing anything? What happens when there's nothing coming from our own life? What happens when we're not considering, wow, Lord, you paid a huge price for my head? What happens if there's nothing coming from our own heart? And I'm not saying that we all need to go and be missionaries in Korea. Don't misunderstand me. But please understand that when you receive the grace of God, uh, there is a production that comes from you out of a grateful heart. And when that doesn't happen, the only thing that I was able to find, the reason why that doesn't happen, is because of a lack of faith. Jesus says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard so you can move a mountain. And Paul moved mountains, didn't he? And if we look at our own life and we say, Lord, I don't really see a whole lot of work coming from me, we pray for faith. There's a I can't remember who prayed it, but they said, Lord, help me in my disbelief. I believe that it was Thomas after he after Jesus said that. He said, Lord, help me in my disbelief. Right? so moving on so Paul what he did what he just did just now is he showed that his experience with the gospel of Jesus was real and he showed that their experience with the gospel of Jesus was real and that he even showed us the readers that our experience was the gospel of Jesus was real and so what does he say in, uh, in verse 12 he says now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead this guy is so stinking surprised he just made the gospel so real so in your faith that he is just like bewildered that there's a teaching that jesus never rose he's like you have seen him you have felt him you have had uh, you've been impacted by the gospel of jesus and he says where on earth is this coming from right and then he needs to make the point and he needs to remind them of what it's like to have a dead messiah to believe in a dead god He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, what that means is that if Jesus didn't rise, and if we don't go to heaven after we die, he says, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, if he's not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. In other words, he's saying that the reason that I left Damascus in the first place to come and to teach the entire world was useless. And the reason that you believed in it, useless. If Jesus had never risen from the dead. And then he says in uh, in verse 15, he says, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ who He did not raise if in fact the dead do not raise from the dead. Paul says that we are liars if Jesus never rose from the dead. that I spent all this time, I spent 40 minutes of your time talking to you about Jesus if He's just dead. Right? He says that we are liars. We are false teachers. We are the same people that influenced them in the first place. The false teachers, the false prophets. He's like, We are just another one of them because we're liars. Because the whole purpose relies that Jesus rose from the dead, right? All of Christianity hangs on that one fact. Verse 16, he says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's not doing anything. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have Christ, we of all men are pitiable. I have one question. What purpose would you have in this life if you didn't know, or if you knew for a fact that Jesus was not at the end of it? So... it If if you're like me, my first assumption is to go make a lot of money and make this life the easiest as much as I can. But what happens afterwards, right? What happens after you're a multimillionaire, you know? What happens afterwards? And there's no God. There's no Jesus to welcome you there. There's no Jesus to walk with you the entire time of your life. Do you guys remember that poem, um, Footsteps or Footprints, right? When someone, he's complaining, he's like, you know, in the hardest time of my life... I only saw one set of footprints, right? And then all the easiest times of my life, I saw two set of footprints. And he's saying, Jesus, where were you in the hardest times of my life? And Jesus says, you only seen one set of footprints because I'm carrying you through the hardest time. Isn't that something? But if Jesus had never risen from the dead, there is no carrying, there is no hope, there's no point. And Paul says that if the only thing we have, let's just say we're not multi-billionaires or whatever because that's what we're setting our aim to. If the only thing we have is hope in Christ, it's the only thing you can hold on to. And that's it. He says, we of all men are pitiable. Imagine where they were at this time. There was the most amount of persecution of any religious group to have ever have happened ever since the Jews went to Babylon and before the Holocaust to the Christians from Rome. And these people... We're literally being told, "Hey, listen! If you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to let you live. Just, just deny it. It's fine, man." But they had such a strong conviction—a uh, sorry, conv- a conviction—to stand and to hold fast to the Word of God that they would say, "You know what? You can, you can let my body be burnt up in hell, but I will not deny the Gospel of Christ." Mm-hmm. And if Jesus didn't rise, what was that for? What's the point of going to work every day, saying that I'm a Christian, and reaching out to your to your coworkers? What's the point of coming to church on Sundays if Jesus didn't arise, If we're just here, because if there's if there is nothing afterwards, what's the point? I make that point to read one more verse. I said I, I know I said verse nineteen, but I was being sneaky. Read verse twenty for me. <laughs> it says, "But now Christ is risen from the dead." Amen, church. Amen. Amen. That is why we are here. Let us not forget that. Let us not forget that everything we do, we do it because Christ rose again. Let's not just remember Jesus' resurrection on Easter, but let's remember it every single day. Let's go to work remembering that Jesus actually rose from the dead and that Jesus is the one that's up in heaven and that it's not a gamble and that you don't have to place your poker chips and you don't have to doubt no more and you don't have to worry about whether or not you're wrong because you're not. You're right. And Jesus did rise from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead, but he is sitting on the right hand of God the Father. And he's advocating for you and for me. And that when you come to church, he sees that. And when you struggle in your life, he sees that. And that all of our life, all of our life is lived in that purpose. Amen. Let's stand.